0: This is the Fuente Podcast. Welcome back. Here we are again. This is now Genesis 10 and 11, part 2. Uh, last time we talked about the Tower of Babel and the sons of God and how all the nations were divided up amongst them. Uh, so we're going to do two things today. We're going to talk about the Tower of Babel, Nimrod, and the sons of God and how those all fit together thematically. That's going to be part one. In the part two of this, we're going to talk about um, a strange passage from First Peter. And I want to talk about that while we still have the flood and the sons of God and all that fresh on our minds. It's going to have a lot of explanatory power for those weird verses. Okay, so <clears throat> starting with those first three things getting linked together thematically. Um, in the original Edenic ideal, humankind was one. Okay, remember Adam and Eve, they were just one, they weren't divided up. There was no idea of nation states. Yet your fellow humanity, we were all one family. The identic ideal was nature, man, and spirit all existing together. Um, It was not a city. Uh, The first city in the Bible was built by a murderer, Cain. Cain builds a city called Enoch. And he names the city after his son, even though he killed his brother. So there's like interesting family uh, issues. Bricks were the latest technology of the day, so they're using advanced technology um, in the Tower of Babel to try to become like God. Okay. Um, and you can actually make sort of an analogy with humanism with that. Uh, it's like this idea that human progress and technology is how we become divine. And creating laws for ourselves, too. Laws of morality. Um, okay, but in, in the Bible, and the literature, continuing with this theme of like bricks and cities and immorality, the Egyptians used the enslaved Jews later on to make bricks. So the, um, the people who are building the Tower of Babel I said earlier that I was going to link it up to Genesis 6. Well, how do we link up these things? How do we link up these two verses? A way that the Hebrew authors would hyperlink the ideas together is they'll use similar vocabulary in different stories. A lot of times our translators will translate a reused word in different ways. Um, And this can be just because they don't see the pattern or it's because um, in English we don't like repeating words a lot we like diversity in our words, but in Hebrew there was a lot of purposeful repetition of words Um, so the the word I'm talking about right here is Shem, that's the Hebrew word for name Um, in the Tower of Babel story the people say let's make a name for ourselves, a Shem for ourselves in the Hebrew, it's clear that this is a link to Genesis 6 um, because it says that the Nephilim were men of the name. And a lot of times, our English Bibles would translate this uh, they were men of notoriety or they were men of renown. But in the Hebrew, it's actually saying they were men of the name. Well, how can I prove that? Um, I can read you a little bit of the Hebrew right now. I'm going to try to read this passage here. Pardon my Hebrew. Cha Nephilim cha'u <laughs> va rads ba hahem vegam acharei kane asher yavu uh, eh ha elohim el be not cha adam veyal do lachem ha ma Borim giberim asher me olam an she hashem. That hashem is the name. Okay, um, and it has the same part when it talks about in Genesis. 11 that they want to make a name for themselves So when it's saying that they're men of renown, it's saying that they're men of the name Hashem um, So that's a connection between the Tower of Babel incident and the sons of God They are men of the name and these people making the Tower of Babel are wanting to make a name for themselves uh, The Tower of Babel, the word Babel is the just the Hebrew word for Babylon um, so I don't know why we translate it Tower of Babel. It's a tower in Babylon. Um, so we have this tower in Babylon where people are trying to play God. And they're trying to make a name for themselves. And then you have the sons of God who are making a political and religious statement against the Babylonian kings. And they're men of the name as well. Okay. Now interestingly enough, later on we're going to see that Abraham is a descendant of a guy named Shem, which is the Hebrew word for name. So you can kind of compare, um, it's almost like the false name versus the true name in a way. Uh, Now, another connection is between Nimrod and uh, the sons of God. And this is another one you wouldn't see unless you were looking at the Hebrew. I want to hear the word gibberim. This word is the word for warrior, okay? I'm going to read just a, just a little bit of the Hebrew. I think you've heard enough of my Hebrew on this podcast. But I'm going to read just enough where you can hear that word gibberim. And before I do, I want to explain that gibberim, that im means the masculine plural in Hebrew. And so if you see the word gibor, it's the same word but in the singular. Okay, here I go. ka cha- gibberim. Okay, there it is. Asher me olam an shei Hashem. So it's right in that same line with Hashem. You see giborim. Fortunately, this word gibor is at the very beginning of verse 9 and chapter 10 of Genesis. So I'm not going to have to read a whole lot of Hebrew to get there. Okay. Hu Haya Gibor Zayid. So there you see Gibor, and it's the same word as geborim. Um So two things connecting these stories. You have Nimrod is supposedly the king of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, and he's described as a Gibor, just like the Nephilim are in Genesis 6. So you, there you see that same double connection you saw between the sons of God and Babel here with Nimrod. In case you've ever been reading the the table of the nations and been like why is this random guy listed in here he's like a connective tissue between these two stories so to review from last time there's been multiple exiles as punishment then a flood and then god is like okay no more destruction but now he punishes with an exile instead of destruction humankind is exiled from god and each other God basically says, you're going to keep murdering each other and ignoring me, and you don't get the... Uh, and Yeah, you keep murdering each other and you keep ignoring me. You don't get the gift of each other anymore, and you don't get the gift of me either. It's kind of like the idea in the New Testament with Paul, where it's basically like, you keep sinning, so your punishment is going to be that I'm going to let you just keep sinning, and you're going to get further and further lost in it. Um, they go off, and if you were a literate Jew who was totally inundated with the culture of this time and understood it, and you were reading the Bible for the first time, you'd feel super depressed right now because Nuach, this Noah who was supposed to bring the Sabbath rest, failed. Adam and Eve failed. And you're you're hoping for this promised snake, snake slayer, but after the Tower of Babel, it looks like God gave up on humanity. How can the snake slayer, this prophesied one, the seed of the woman, ever come, If God's going to disinherit all the nations. And everything just kind of went to crap. I guess God's given up on us. That's what you'd be saying to yourself. But then comes the story of Abraham. Which I'll get into in a later podcast. But Tower of Babel covered. I want to wade through the deep waters of some weird New Testament verses. And all of this will make way more sense if you've ever seen these verses before now that we've talked about these things and we've approached it looking at a second temple jewish um, point of view and talking about the epic of gilgamesh and first enoch it's all going to make way more sense okay if you've ever read this from first peter and been like what is this about angels imprisoned underground just hold on we'll get there what's really funny is so this this part from first peter It's quoted a whole lot, but people only quote the beginning part that's inspirational and would make sense to a modern reader. They leave off all the weird crap. As I read, you'll see a lot of the verses are familiar, and then I'll tell you whenever it starts getting weird and no one ever quotes from it anymore. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and and respect. How often have we heard that verse growing up? um it's so often quoted with apologetics in mind and it has apologetics in mind but let's keep going keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in christ may be ashamed of their slander for it is better if it's god's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil so he's trying to encourage these people who are going through a really hard time and he's saying it's better for you to suffer than to not suffer, and also not be doing God's will. Better to do God's will and suffer than it is to not do God's will and not suffer. Why is this? He's going to go on and tell us. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you God. So he's saying, Christ suffered too. The guy we're all trying to be like. So when you suffer, you shouldn't be worried because Christ also suffered. And he continues on to give them hope. He says, he was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. So, um, indirectly then, he's kind of implying, hey, Jesus was brought back to life in the Spirit, so will you. It's okay if you suffer right now, because you're going to be brought back to life in the Spirit. This is where it starts to get weird, okay? And you need to stick with Peter's thought pattern here. He's trying to tell these people something that's going to comfort them in their time of suffering. By talking about things Jesus has done, and therefore, impliedly, they're going to be going through something analogous to it. Okay? After being made alive, this is talking about Jesus, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits, those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, so uh, Jesus, it says, he went... To Tartarus, that's what the Greek says. Tartarus was kind of like Sheol, it's just this kind of gloomy cave. Okay? And he went there to preach to the spirits that were locked in there from the time when Noah was building the ark. Huh? Okay, we'll keep going. To those who were disobedient long ago, when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight and all, were saved through the water. Okay? Jesus went and he preached doom to evil spirits. Um, and then, so this is kind of, this is a parallel with a book called First Enoch that I talk about all the time. In First Enoch, it's supposedly written by... Not the Enoch who was the son of Cain, but the Enoch who comes later on and is the one who is supposedly lived 365 years and then was taken up into heaven. Obviously a very symbolic number of years to be alive. It's the solar year. Uh, This Enoch, there was a book written and scholars' debate about when it was written exactly, but some of the oldest parts they believe date to around 300 BC. And in this book, this Enoch is approached by what's called the watchers in the book, but it's really talking about the sons of God from Genesis 6. But these sons of God approach him and they say, hey, could you go to God and ask him to have mercy on us for all the sex we had with humans? And Enoch goes to God and asks and puts their plea before God, and then God says, nope, you know, they're they're done. Uh, they're screwed. Go tell them they're going to be judged. They're going to be locked up underground until the end of times and then be judged. And so Enoch goes and he preaches to the spirits who've been locked up uh, in Tartarus. Here, Peter is comparing Jesus to Enoch. And he's saying that, so in the same way that Paul kind of said that Jesus was the ultimate Adam, here Peter is saying that Jesus is the ultimate Enoch. And that's why they shouldn't have to worry in a time of suffering. Enoch, remember, never died. He was taken up into heaven. Okay, um, so Enoch, uh, Jesus is being compared to Enoch. He preaches to the spirits. Um, oh, and it, and it talks about in the days of Noah, when the ark was being built. Only a few people, eight in all, were saved through the water. So probably a big concern going on in the Christians, this is around, scholars believe this letter was written between the year 60 and 64 AD. This is before Jerusalem was, was sacked by General Pompey. Um, it's during the reign of Nero. Okay, there's not a ton of Christians in the world at this time. Christians are probably thinking, why are there so few of us? Okay, how does that make sense? Shouldn't God's view be bigger than just this small group of us? And uh, Peter's reminding them that God brought about a new creation. Remember, Noah was born on Tishri 1, which is the Jewish anniversary of the creation of the world. This guy named Rest, he's supposed to bring Sabbath rest. Through him, humanity's remade again. Okay, but during the story of Noah, only eight people were saved in all. Okay, and so he's saying just like they're small, it's okay that you're a small amount of people because look in the story of Noah, it was a small amount of people that were saved through the water. Now remember, in your ancient Mesopotamian Jewish context, water was chaos. It was uncreated chaos. Okay, it was danger and chaos, and it's what's used as judgment against the sons of God and the Nephilim in the flood story. It's God's tool of judgment. The same way God used exile against humans in the garden, an exile of Cain, an exile of the people from each other and from himself at the Tower of Babel, he used water to judge the sons of God and the Nephilim. Okay, so this water should be kind of scary to them. Okay, and so Peter says, "Uh, in it only a few, eight in all, were saved through the water. So it's okay that there's only a few of you, and it's through this water you were saved. And he continues, and this water symbolizes baptism that now saves you also. Not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience toward God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven and is at the right hand with the angels, authorities, and powers in submission to him. Who are the angels, authorities, and powers? They're the sons of God. And I want to back up and look at this line here says, a pledge of a clear conscience, okay? That word pledge is a aperitima. And that means like a token or a sign of something, okay? And I'm gonna read this whole verse here. Okay, umas antitupon nun sozei baptisma u sarcos apothesis rupao ala and here comes the, um this word that's translated consciousness uh sunei deos um agathis agathis means good okay so good and they say conscious there but this sunei deos Seus is more like um, a disposition of loyalty. Okay? It's the location of your loyalty. Where does your loyalty lie? Okay, So it's a, an eperotima, a pledge, a token, of your sune di seus, your disposition of where your loyalty is. So it's a sign of where your loyalties lie. It's like a symbol to show that your loyalty, that you lie within good loyalty. I guess I'm, you know, this is why they don't hire me to translate Bibles. Next, we can deal with this water. So Peter's saying that your the sign of where your loyalties lie is tied up with water. Okay, water is what brings the judgment on the sons of God, and it says in this water that, that would judge them symbolizes the baptism that now saves you. Not the removal of dirt from your bodies, but a pledge, that sign or symbol, of where your loyalties lie, that sunae Diseus. Why is the baptism so controversial for the spiritual realm? Because you are hearkening back to the flood story where water was used to judge the sons of God. And so peter if you're if you're soaked in second temple jewish thought you realize that peter is saying that just like they were safe through the water you're going to be safe through the water and when you're dunked and brought out of it in this baptism you're putting out um, you're flexing basically to the spiritual world hey judgment's coming for you guys okay there's going to be vindication and even though the christians look like they're at the bottom of the stack getting kicked by everybody now. It's going to be just like the flood story where they end up coming out through the water and everybody else is judged by it. And so baptism is a way of marking to the spiritual world which side you're on. And you're saying, I'm on the side of Noah and on the side of the righteous, even if it's a minority, to be saved through the chaos and judgment that will hit everybody else. Okay notably the sons of God. And it goes on, talking about this idea of vindication, this idea of coming out on top. It's okay that you're suffering because you're going to come out on top. Look how it explains Jesus coming out on top. Jesus Christ, who's gone into heaven, is at God's right hand. That's a, a little pointer back to Daniel 7. We talked about that. Jesus in the Victory of God podcast section. With angels, authorities, and powers, in submission to him. When you're growing up in the church, you read something like that, and you oh yeah, that's spiritual fluffery. No, it's talking about angels, authorities, and powers. This divine council, powerful spiritual beings, like the ones that were involved with the the flood uh, narrative, being put under Jesus. I'm going to read a little bit from Keener here talking about this. He says, ancient writers sometimes used inverted parallelism called a chiasm. We talk about those a lot on this podcast. One such chiasm might occur here. If one may identify the spirits of 319 with the angels of 322, which for my podcast listeners, you should be going, duh, yeah, of course it's talking about those. Look look at this. A, your slanderers will be ashamed. That's in verse 316. B, suffer through innocent in God's will, 317. C, for Christ uh, suffered for the unjust, 318. D. He triumphed over the hostile spirits. 319. Here we're going to hit the, the middle of it. E. Noah was saved through the water. 320. E number 2. Or let's say E apostrophe. You Are saved through the water. 321. D. Christ triumphed over the hostile spirits. 322. C. Christ suffered. 4 1 A. B. Suffer in God's will. 4 1 B through 2. A. Your slanders will be ashamed. 4 3 through 5. So This idea of They'll be ashamed on the on the sides of the sandwich. The bread's made out of the slanders will be ashamed. And then inside that is suffer uh, though innocent in God's will versus suffer in God's will. Then for Christ suffered for the unjust. Uh, for Christ suffered. Then you go another layer and he triumphed over the hostile spirits. Christ triumphed over hostile spirits. And then E, Noah was safe through the water. You're safe through the water. So hopefully this illuminated this weird scripture more, Um, and I thought it was related to the flood and Babel and all that, so I thought that I would bring it up in this podcast. All right, I'll see you guys next time.